And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is June the 23rd, 174th day of the year. 191 days remain until the year's over with. And as you all ask for holidays and observances, it's National Porridge Day. National Take Your Dog to Work Day. Estonia Victory Day. And a National Olympic Day. And a National Widows Day. Jura Independence Day. Let It Go Day. National Day of Luxembourg. I've spent several days in Luxembourg. Very nice place. They, uh, they're ruled by Grand Duke and Duchess. National Detroit Style Pizza Day. National Family Owned and Operated Business Day. National Hydration Day. National Pecan Sandies Day. National Pink Day. National Typewriter Day. Pink Flamingo Day. United Nations Public Service Day. Women in Engineering Day. Well, in 229 A.D., Sun Quan proclaims herself Emperor of Western Wu. 1266, the War of St. Sabas and the Battle of Trapani. Venetians defeat a large Genoese fleet and captured all its ships. 1280, the Spanish Reconquista, Battle of Maclin in the Emirate of Granada. Um, they ambush a superior pursuing force. Killing most of them in a military disaster for the Kingdom of Castile. 1305, a peace treaty between the Flemish and the French is signed at Athis sur Orga. 1314, First War of Scottish Independence. The Battle of Bannockburn, south of Stirling, takes place. Now, that particular battle, it was a two day battle between the army of Robert the Bruce, King of the Scots, and the army of King Edward II of England. It was a decisive victory for Robert uh, Bruce and formed a major turning point of the war, but it drug on for another 14 years, eventually ending with the uh, restoration of Scottish independence under the Treaty of uh, Edinburgh and Northampton. So the uh, Battle of Bannockburn is widely considered a landmark moment in Scottish history. And uh, it's interesting to note that um, not only am I descended from Edward IV of England, but also Robert the Bruce. Got an interesting history, just the money did, didn't come with it. 1532, Henry VIII of England and Francis I of France signed the Treaty of Closer Amity with France, also known as the Pomeray Treaty. They pledged mutual aid against Charles V, who was Holy Roman Emperor. Though by 1532, the empire wasn't holy, and it wasn't Roman. 1565, Dragut, commander of the Ottoman Navy, dies during the Great Siege of Malta. 1594, the action of Fiala and the Azores. Portuguese character Cinco Chagas, loaded with slaves and treasures, attacked and sunk English ships with only 13 survivors out of over 700 people on board. 1911, the mutinous crew of Henry Hudson's fourth voyage sets Henry, his son, and seven loyal crew members adrift in an open boat in what's now Hudson Bay. 
It's a major mystery they would have heard from again. Uh, 1683, William Penn signs a friendship treaty with the Lenny Lenape Indians in Pennsylvania. 1713, French residents of Acadia are given a year to declare allegiance to Britain or else leave Nova Scotia. None of them did. 1757, Battle of Plassey. 3,000 British troops under Robert Clive defeat a 50,000-strong Indian army under Siraj Ud Dalma at the at Plassey. 1758, Seven Years' War, Battle of Krefeld. British Hanover and the Prussian forces defeat French troops at Krefeld in uh, Germany. 1760, Seven Years' War, Battle of Landeshut. Austria defeats Prussia. 1780, American Revolution. Battle of Springfield, fought in and around Springfield, New Jersey. Also included Short Hills, which is originally part of Springfield, but now part of Melbourne Township. 1794, Empress Catherine II of Russia grants Jews permission to settle in Kiev. 1810, John Jacob Astor forms the Pacific Fur Company. 1812, Great Britain revokes the restrictions on American commerce, which eliminates one of the main reasons for the War of 1812, but we had a war anyway. Can't let a good war go to waste, you know. 1860, Congress establishes the government printing office. 1865, American Civil War at Fort Towson in the Oklahoma Territory. Confederate Brigadier General Stan Waddy surrenders uh, the last significant Confederate army. 1868, Christopher Latham Shoals gets a patent for an invention he called the type writer. 1887, Rocky Mountain Park Act becomes law in Canada, creates the nation's first national park. Banff National Park, that's B-A-N-F-F. 1894, International Olympic Committee is founded at the Sorbonne in Paris at the initiative of Baron Pierre de Coubertin. 1913, Second Balkan War. Greeks defeat the Bulgarians in the Battle of Doran. 1914, the Mexican Revolution. Pancho Villa takes Zacatecas from Victoriano Huerta. Huerta was buried here for a long time. 1917, in the game against the Washington Senators, Boston Red Sox pitcher Shore retires 26 batters in a row after... He replaced Babe Ruth, who had been ejected for punching the umpire. Sometimes umpires need punching. 1919, Estonian War of Independence, the decisive defeat of the Baltic Landeswehr at the Battle of Sasus, uh, took place on this date. Celebrated as the Victory Day in Estonia. 1926, College Board administers the first SAT exam. And he's running one windy post, and Harold Gaddy take off Roosevelt Field, Long Island, in an attempt to circumnavigate the world in a single-engine plane. 1938, Civil Aeronautics Act is signed into law, forming the Civil Aeronautics Authority in the United States. 1940, Adolf Hitler goes on a three-hour tour of the architecture of Paris with architect Albert Speer and sculptor Arnold Brecker. And his only visit to the city... 1940, Henry Larson begins the first successful west-to-east navigation of Northwest Passage from Vancouver, British Columbia, and Canada. 1941, Lithuanian Activist Front declares independence from the Soviet Union and forms a provisional government of Lithuania. It 
last only briefly as the Nazis come in and occupy Lithuania only a few weeks later. 1942, World War II. Germany's latest fighter aircraft, a Falk Wolf FW 190, is captured intact. Pilot made a slight error and mistakenly landed in RAF uh, Pembrey in Wales. 1946, uh, 1946 Vancouver Island earthquake strikes, strikes Vancouver Island in British Columbia. 1947, United States Senate follows the United States House of Representatives and overriding President uh, Truman's veto of the Taft-Hartley Act. Now, the, for those that are not familiar with the Taft-Hartley Act actually is, it's actually, it's the real title is the Labor Management Relations Act of 1947. It's a federal law that restricts the activities and power of labor unions. Um, it was enacted by the 80th Congress over the veto of President Truman. It became law uh, June 23, 1947. Introduced in the aftermath of a major strike wave in 45 and 46. Nineteen fifty one, Ocean Liner SS United States is christened and launched. Nineteen fifty six, French National Assembly takes the first step in creating the French community by passing the Loi Cadre, which transferred a number of powers from Paris to elected territorial governments in French West Africa. Nineteen fifty nine, convicted Manhattan Project spy Klaus Fuchs is released after only nine years in prison. Allowed to immigrate to Dresden, East Germany, where he resumed a scientific career working for the Communists. 1960, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration declares Innovid to be the first officially approved combined oral contraceptive pill in the world. 1961, Antarctic Treaty System, which sets aside Antarctica as a scientific preserve and limits military activity on the continent, is its islands and ice shells, comes into force on this date. 1967, Cold War, U.S. President Lyndon, I'm going to be King Johnson, meets Soviet Premier Alexei Kosygin in Glassboro, New Jersey for the three-day Glassboro Summit Conference. 1969, Warren Burger sworn in as Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court by retiring Chief Justice Earl Mr. Cover-Up Warren. 1969, IBM announces effective January 70 to price its software and services separately from hardware which created the modern um, software industry. 1972, Watergate scandal. President Nixon and White House Chief of Staff H.R. Haldeman are tape talking about illegally using the CIA to obstruct the Federal Bureau of Investigation's investigation into the Watergate break-in. Also in 72, Title IX of the U.S. Civil Rights Act is amended to prohibit sexual discrimination to any educational program getting federal funds. 1973, a fire to house in Hall, England, which kills a six-year-old boy is passed off as an accident by the powers that be. Later comes out as the first of 26 deaths by fire caused over the next seven years by a serial arsonist named Peter Dinsdale. 1985, a terrorist bomb explodes at Narita International Airport near Tokyo. Hour later, the same group detonates a second bomb on board an Air India flight, um, Air India Flight 182, Bringing that Boeing 747 down off the coast of Ireland killed all 329 people on board. 1991, Sonic the Hedgehog is released in North America on the Sega Genesis platform. 
<coughs> that begins that popular video game franchise. 1994, NASA Space Station Processing Facility, a new state-of-the-art manufacturing building for the International Space Station, officially opens at Kennedy Space Center. 2001, 8.4 southern Peru earthquake shakes coastal Peru with a maximum Michele intensity of 8, which is considered severe. A destructive uh, tsunami follows, kills 74 and injures 2,687. 2012, Ashton Eaton breaks the decathlon world record at the U.S. Olympic trials. 2013, Nick Wolinda becomes the first man to successfully walk across the Grand Canyon on a tightrope. Also in 2013, militants storm a high-altitude mountaineering base camp near Nanga Parbat in Gilgit, Bautistan, Pakistan. Kills 10 climbers and a local guide. 2014, the last of Syria's declared chemical weapons are shipped out for destruction, allegedly. 2016, the UK votes on a referendum to leave the European Union. It passes 52% to 48%. 2017, a series of terrorist attacks takes place in Pakistan. 96 die. Over 200 are wounded. And in 2018, 12 boys and an assistant coach from a soccer team in Thailand are trapped in a flooded cave, leading to an 18-day rescue operation. Well, we've been talking about what I call the Kennedy hit list. And we've done four segments. This will be our fifth segment today. And it's fascinating when you consider just how many people... um, were killed. It's over 50 that were killed in, um, directly or indirectly as a result of the Kennedy assassination. You know, one of the better known um, resistance leaders was Eladio de Valle. He was uh, trying to um, free Cuba from Castro. Well, February 22nd, 1967, he died of a gunshot wound to the heart. In addition to a number of machete wounds to the head, it's still an unsolved murder. He was killed the same day David Ferry died, at the exact time that both were sought as key witnesses in the, the Jim Garrison investigation of the Kennedy assassination. On the exact, ex, exact same day that Ferry died, and it's even within the same hour, um, this other witness was murdered in broad daylight. So what are the odds that two people with connections such as that on the same day at the same hour um, die. Now, David Ferry was labeled a suicide. But um, Eladio Del Valle was a friend of Ferry. 
One of his closest friends, as a matter of fact, and highly visible anti-Castro-Cuban, was murdered in Miami. Both were sought by the garrison investigation. Now, Devalia was involved simultaneously with the anti-Castro movement, the CIA, and organized crime, and he was considered one of the most important people linked to the JFK assassination. Within the anti-Castro group, he was a, a leader. And he was the one who apparently ordered the assassination of Gilberto Rodriguez Hernandez and Manuel Rodriguez uh, Quesada, two other uh, folks who were killed uh, in September and October 1964. They were allegedly killed by uh, an assassin by the name of O'Hare as part of a government conspiracy invoked to uh, provide a smokescreen to shield the real assassins. A couple of years later, the tracks to these killers uh, were getting clearer because by the time of the garrison investigation, somebody senior to Del Valle made the same decision about him and sent uh, the same professional assassins to, uh, to take him off the board. John O'Hare later admitted that um, Del became a liability due to the exposure of David Ferry to the press in New Orleans and and that led to Garrison's uh, wanting him to testify. It was like dominoes. If they got Ferry, everybody affiliated with him might be pulled in. Rondell Devalier was a friend and associate of Ferry. Both saw for questioning by Jim Garrison. And as I said, both died the same day, in fact, in the same hour. Ferry had been questioned one time, and Del Valle was killed before Garrison could get to him. Now, as early as the 1960s, Del Valle was working with David Ferry, who was a pilot, flying clandestine missions over Cuba. January 1961, shortly before the Bad Pigs invasion, Del Valle told the New York Daily News, he had a fighting force of 8,500 men in Cuba and a skeleton force of 200 working in Miami and Central America. By 1963, he was a leader in the Committee for to Free Cuba. Well, an investigator for the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee looked into Delia's Cuban connections and... Uh, said, uh, now there was a gun for hire. Anything that had to do with smuggling or gun running, Devalier was involved in it. He was both a bag man and a hit man, mainly involved with people from the Batista regime. That's the regime overthrown by Castro. Tony Cuesta was another main leader of the anti-Castro-Cuban groups in Florida, and he admitted that he was involved in the Kennedy assassination. Friend of Devaya also indicated uh, that uh, that same connection. Diego Gonzalez Tendera, close friend, later claimed that Devaya was murdered because of his involvement in the assassination of President Kennedy. Another intelligence source also named Devaya as a key player in the 
conspiracy to kill the president. According to Harry Dean, uh, the um, alias of a man who claimed to be a former CIA agent, um, he was quoted in a, a book entitled Alias Oswald. The assassins were Anna Castro activist Hall and Del Valle, who were hired by the John Birch Society. Now, I doubt the John, personally doubt the John Birch Society was a major player. They may have been a peripheral player. It's also interesting to note that Del Valle was rumored to have been uh, An informant for reporter Dorothy Kilgallen regarding David Ferry. Linking Ferry to the assassination of, and uh, as a key player in the entire conspiracy. Well, when you look at all the evidence regarding De Valle, the conclusion is he was assassinated. John O'Hare, the same professional assassin who admitted killing... Uh, Two others, at the instructions of Del Valle, admitted uh, that he assassinated Del Valle himself when he became a liability to the, the powers that be. Well, Ferry did make the comment to Jim Garrison when Garrison publicly announced that he wanted to talk to him about the assassination, that he had actually handed him a death sentence. And in fact, he was dead a short time later. Now, after discussing Ferry at such length, we're going to talk about him now. He was a member of the the, uh, the Kennedy hit list. Actually, he's number 30 on the list. And he died February 22, 1967, of an alleged brain aneurysm. Died of natural causes, according to the powers that be. Now, he'd just been named a defendant in District Attorney Jim Garrison's case for conspiracy in the JFK assassination. And Ferry did publicly state that Garrison just signed his death warrant. Now, keep in mind, brain aneurysms are not always They can, in fact, be induced. Two type notes were left behind uh, indicating suicide. And, but at the same time, some say suicide. It's a rather odd coincidence that he died at the same time from natural causes, which indicates that may have been a stage suicide. Well, it looks like somebody was silencing key witnesses a lot quicker than New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison could get to them and ask them questions. The um, February 22nd, same day that Ferry died, Devaye's body was discovered by a Miami police sprawled across the floor of his flaming red Cadillac. He'd been beaten with a machete, shot above the heart, and then... Uh, been physically beaten as well. 
Garrison's investigative staff have been trying to get a hold of him to question him. And the same night that Devalier died, um, Ferry died. Now, the coroner's ruling said natural causes regarding the ferry, but the coroner, at that point in time, if he had been told by uh, intelligence sources to say that uh, Bozo the Clown had come in and shot him, he'd have happily said that. Now, Ferry was viewed as a key witness. He seemed to be the man at the center of what you might call a web of, of information. He knew Lee Harvey Oswald, worked closely with Jack Ruby. Ferry and Oswald were frequent visitors to Guy Bannister's office. He worked with Clay Shaw, who was the defendant in the, the case brought by Garrison. He was employed by the godfather, Carlos Marcello, as both his personal pilot and private investigator. He was reportedly uh, named as the pilot who was supposed to fly one of the assassins out of Dallas after the assassination. And he had clear links to the CIA, especially in its covert anti-Cuban operations. He was an expert hypnotist who extensively studied the limits of post-hypnotic suggestion and practiced hypnotic skills on the the boys who ran the Civil Air Patrol, one of whom was Lee Harvey Oswald. He was also an instructor with the uh, Civil Air Patrol. Ferry worked closely with Dr. Mary Sherman, a secret intelligence project developing cancer-causing super viruses. And there are a lot of strange circumstances surrounding Dr. Sherman's murder. Almost immediately following Kennedy's assassination, one of Garrison's assistants got a Suggestion from Jack Martin, a local private detective with intelligence ties, to pick up and question a certain David Ferry. Now, Ferry was a homosexual, rumored to have CIA ties, and worked as a private investigator and personal pilot for um, Carlos Marcello. The moment of the assassination, he'd been in a federal courtroom watching uh, Marcello be acquitted of deportation proceedings that John and Robert Kennedy instigated against him two years previously. It's been established that Ferry is working big time in the anti-Castro covert military operations. That was a major operation in the CIA. According to Jim Garrison, the Bannister apparatus was part of a supply line that ran along the Dallas-New Orleans-Miami corridor. And these supplies consisted of arms and explosives for use against Castro's Cuba. Well, in addition to his connections to Dovalle and other exiled Cubans working against Castro, Ferry also worked closely with Jack Ruby and Clay Shaw. Shaw was a CIA asset and eventually was indicted for the murder of President Kennedy. And Ferry also knew Lee Harvey Oswald, as I said, knew him very well, going all the way back to Oswald's youth and the Civil Air Patrol and which meant Oswald was a pilot. And it seems to work closely in the process of setting up Oswald. In fact, the links to the killers of President Kennedy seem to be deeply enmeshed in that same group of men. 
men who travel back and forth between organized crime and U.S. intelligence, especially Ferry and Ruby and Roselli, who were deeply involved in the CIA covert anti-Castro operations. And it was these same anti-Castro operations based in South Florida from which the process to set up Oswald was launched. Now, to sum up the operational conclusions of Jim Garrison's investigative team at the New Orleans District Attorney's Office, says Garrison was convinced that a group of right-wing extremists, including Ferry, Bannister, and Clay Shaw, were involved in a conspiracy with elements of the CIA to kill John Kennedy. Garrison would later claim the motive for the assassination was anger over Kennedy's attempts to obtain a peace settlement in both Cuba and Vietnam. Garrison also believed that Shaw and Bannister and Ferry had conspired to set up Oswald as a patsy in the assassination. So David Ferry had some very strong linkage to the CIA assassination. Like Johnny Rosselli, Jack Ruby, and Chauncey Holt, Ferry traveled in two worlds at the same time. Trusted member of organized crime. At the same time, he was also deeply involved in actions and even specific missions on behalf of U.S. intelligence, primarily in anti-Castro intelligence operations. And it certainly appeared to millions of suspicious-minded Americans when it came to the, the crazy matters concerning the Kennedy assassination that New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison was actually putting the pieces of the puzzle together and making sense of that very confusing jigsaw puzzle. He made the comment, I have solid evidence indicating Ruby, Ferry, Oswald, and others involved in this case are all paid by the CIA to perform certain functions. Ruby was to smuggle arms for Cuban exile groups. Ferry was to train them and fly counter-revolutionary secret missions to Cuba. And Oswald was to establish himself so convincingly as a Marxist that he'd won the trust of American left-wing groups and have freedom to travel as a spy in communist countries, particularly Cuba. And Garrison went on to say, we have evidence linking Ruby not only to anti-Castro exile activities, but uh, as with almost everybody else involved in this case, to the CIA itself. You can't forget the CIA maintains a great variety of curious alliances that feel serve its purpose. Might be hard to imagine Ruby in a trench coat, but he seems to have been as good an employee of the CIA as he was a pimp for the Dallas cops. So, Americans and the world were suddenly paying close attention to what Garrison said about his investigation and its findings. And Garrison discovered Ruby's up to his neck with the plotters. Garrison's investigators have broken a code Oswald used and found Ruby's private unlisted telephone number written in Oswald's notebook. And the same coded number was found in the address book of another prominent figure in this mess. I mean, Garrison was nobody's fool. Uh, I don't want any dispenses was some of the typical nonsense he used to, to receive. Nonsense that uh, is still widely disseminated in various media formats and very obvious attempt to marginalize Garrison's findings. He specifically addressed the, the concept of a temporarily deranged man. 
And that was a catch-all phrase employed whenever the real motive of a crime can't be nailed down. In the majority of instances, the actions of human beings are the direct consequence of discernible motives. And Ruby's reason for killing Oswald so that Jackie Kennedy didn't have to come take part in a trial was total nonsense. He wouldn't have known Jackie Kennedy if she walked in the room and slapped him. And according to Garrison, this was the fatal flaw of the Warren Report, his conclusion that the assassination of President Kennedy was the act of a temporarily deranged man, that the murder of Officer Tippett was meaningless, and finally that Jack Ruby's murder of Oswald was another act of a temporarily deranged individual. Of course, it's wildly improbable that all three acts were coincidentally the aberrant acts of temporarily deranged men, although it's most convenient to view them as such because the judgment obviates the necessity of relentlessly investigating the possibility of a conspiracy. Well, Garrison's legal logic was based on good old-fashioned common sense, and the American people knew it. And Ruby's case, according to Garrison, his murder of Oswald was the answer. It was the sanest act he ever committed. If Oswald lived another day or so, he might probably have named names and Jack Ruby had been convicted as a conspirator in the assassination plot. As it was, he made the best of a bad situation by killing Oswald at the police station, since this act could be construed as an argument that he was temporarily deranged. The odd thing noted by Garrison is that Ferry's death if it had been natural, as the coroner concluded. Why was there a suicide note? In fact, Ferry left two notes. You know, the, there have been a lot of self-proclaimed conspiracy debunkers had their work cut out for him and really got to work addressing the the major points in the Kennedy assassination. In the process, when they effectively debunked was the possibility that Ferry actually died from suicide. According to John McAdams, the last person to see Ferry alive, George Lardner Jr., reported him to be in good spirits. And several people who talked to him in the last week of his life reported that in spite of his health problems, he was in a combative mood until fighting Garrison's charges against him. In fact, he was going to file suit against Garrison. But one key piece of evidence was discovered by Blackburst in Garrison's own files. A bottle of Proilud tablets was found in Ferry's apartment after his death and had seven tablets left in it. Why wouldn't somebody who planned on committing suicide just take the whole bottle? Aside from the observations that uh, John McAdams had a pretty twisted notion of what luck would be to a man like Garrison, it also makes it apparent that Ferry's death was probably not suicide or accident. Now, a natural death on too much pressure as some, even the medical examiner, suggested, um, would probably not fit the bill. Ronda reported Ferry left behind two type notes that suggested suicide. 
but suggesting suicide and committing suicide are two entirely different things. Both of the notes were typed, undated, and unsigned. And frankly, they don't appear to be suicide notes. They appear, instead, to be two notes written by a man who knew he was leaving the world. With the words of a man who were making his final statement, words he wanted to be remembered for after he left. One note to his best friend started out, when you read this, I'll be quite dead, no answer be possible. The end of the note said, as you sowed, so shall you reap. The other note started out to leave this life to me as a sweet prospect. And then it went on to complain about the justice system and ended with all the state needs as evidence to support a conviction. If this is justice, then justice be damned. So they don't actually appear to be notes about a planned suicide. But they were used to refute uh, Garrison's claim, which was simply regarding the possibility of Ferry had killed himself to escape prosecution. You know, that's an interesting idea, but not at all what's actually important. In the process of trying to prove Garrison wrong, a lot of the debunkers made the case for things amiss in the field of foul play. Now, it's extremely noteworthy upon closer examination of the contents of those two notes. They don't sound like a man planning to uh, commit suicide. After Ferry was publicly named as an accused conspirator in the Kennedy assassination by the New Orleans District Attorney's Office, uh, Ferry exploded at Garrison's aide, Lion Ivan. And his, act, his exact words were, you know what this news story does to me, don't you? I'm a dead man. From here on, believe me, I'm a dead man. So, take that statement and tie it with the sentiments and uh, the words in Ferry's two letters. When you read this, I'll be quite dead. No answer will be possible. Keep in mind that Ferry actually worked hand-in-hand hand with Mafia Godfather, Carlos Marcello. And he knew the operations of the mob, knew what they did to people that had to be eliminated. He just seen uh, one person that he knew, Jack Ruby, do precisely that to another person who he also knew, Lee Harvey Oswald. Doesn't take a genius to uh, surmise from all this that Ferry knew his days were numbered. And he didn't have many left. Now, the conspiracy refuters inadvertently ruled out accidental death as well as suicide by promising, uh, by pointing out that the drug uh, proloid found in Ferry's apartment is too slow-acting to have killed him between the time he was last seen alive by uh, journalist uh, George Lardner uh, Jr. in the time he was found dead. It is true the New Orleans coroner, Nichols Chetta, eventually concluded that Ferry died of a cerebral hemorrhage. Technically, it's known as a uh, Berry aneurysm. In very simple terms, it could be called a stroke. And everybody believed that just because Ferry died of a stroke meant that he hadn't been murdered. Among that, not everyone was uh, 
the managing director of the Metropolitan Crime Commission of New Orleans, Aaron Cohn, who believed that Ferry was murdered. Another witness related to the Kennedy assassination explained in a video interview the specific type of cerebral hemorrhage in which Ferry died can be intentionally inflicted. The assassin pierces the roof of the mouth with a smooth object like a nail file, and very little evidence is made of the tear. Well, nothing like that was looked for during the autopsy. Well, our next member is Rolando Masfera. Died October 5th, 1975. Known as El Tigre, major Cuban exile resistance leader based in South Florida. Somebody put dynamite in his car. Another unsolved murder. Like Jimmy Hoffa, Masferis definitely had involvement in the Kennedy assassination, but was also involved in a lot of dirty deals with the mafia. So he was clearly assassinated in a what was real, uh, viewed as a highly professional hit, but uh, the question is, who did it? To give you some idea of El Tigre's clout, he financed a private army in support of uh, Batista, the Cuban dictator overthrown by Castro. The army was known as Los Tigres, which Masfera uh, was named after. Masfera was a powerful, ruthless anti-Cuban leader among the Cuban government in exile, fighting from 90 miles away in a Florida base of operations. He was an ex-Cuban senator and newspaper publisher who reportedly fled the island with about $10 million in his pocket. When U.S. Senate aide referred to him as the guy that could slit your throat and smile while he was doing it. Colonel William Bishop was the senior military liaison to the Executive Action Assassination Program. And yes, it did exist. And he was no stranger to some of the most dangerous killers on the planet. So it's noteworthy he considered El Tigre right out there with the worst of the worst and is the man to be reckoned with. He described him as the key bagman for Alpha 66, an extremely violent anti-Castro movement. Had strong ties to the mafia via Traficante. While people in Florida and elsewhere also made another interesting connection. He also had different ties with Jimmy Hoffa. Far back in 62, uh, there was an affiliation between the two. But Rolando, from time to time, when it came to large sums of money, had sticky fingers. And a lot of folks think that's why he was killed. Either that or the Kennedy assassination, because he knew what was involved in that as well. Colonel Bishop clearly confirmed two of the participants in the Kennedy assassination were Orlando Mesfera and Tony Verona. Interview with Dick Russell elaborated on how the Kennedy administration's Cuban policies had infuriated the anti-Castro uh, Cubans. He said, you take Tony Verona and Orlando Mesfera to name but two, and there were many, many more. When serious talk began to happen about the possibility of assassinating Kennedy. Well, in what was clearly a professional hit, Masfera was assassinated when dynamite exploded in his car. He was another Cuban, exile employed by the CIA, blown to bits when his car exploded. 
and he'd also worked with Watergate plumbers Hunt, Sturgis, and Barker. According to May Brussel, who was uh, an assassination researcher and author, he would have been investigated for his activities in connection with assassination attempts on foreign leaders if he hadn't been killed. Military intelligence operative Richard Case Nagel came up with a picture of how it uh, all fits together. He says Masfero was one of the individuals he was assigned to investigate. One individual who had known links to the Kennedy assassination. And he shared ties with a number of other folks on the hit list. Well, there's no question this was an assassination. Probably linked to his knowledge of the Kennedy assassination. But then again, could have been a retaliation killing for um, holding on to more money than he should have. Now, this next member of our hit parade is an interesting individual, Dr. Mary Sherman. Died July 21st, 1964. She was a cancer researcher. Had multiple stab wounds that penetrated the heart, the liver, the stomach, the labia minora, the left arm, and the right leg. Extreme burns of on the right side of the body with complete destruction of the right upper extremity and the right side of the thorax and abdomen. Exposed... Uh, Number of vital organs. Like so many other members of our hit list, this was an unsolved murder. She was deeply involved in covert research, developed a super cancer as a biological weapon. And she knew both Lee Harvey Oswald and David Ferry, who were both involved in the same research project. So uh, Jack Ruby, when he said he was injected with cancer cells, may well have been telling the truth. Well, in addition to multiple stab wounds, virtually the entire right side of her upper body was gone. Her apartment was set on fire after she was killed, and her death occurred on the same day that the Warren Commission came to New Orleans to obtain testimony on the assassination of President Kennedy. Her arm was literally disintegrated. Damage her body sustained with absolute certainty can't be explained by the official version of events, which mentioned that she was murdered in her home and uh, set a fire. Various evidentiary consistencies were also apparent, which are examined in detail as we go through this little scenario. Mary S. Sherman was a gifted physician who was selected for a special cancer research project in New Orleans by Dr. Newspaper articles about her death referred to as an internationally known bone specialist. She was an assistant professor at a prominent medical school engaged in monkey virus research. Director of a cancer laboratory at an internationally famous medical clinic. Chairman of the pathology committee of one of the most elite medical societies in America. And she wrote medical articles that are still being quoted. Her murder was front page news in New Orleans, as you might guess. In fact, the burglary angle was notably highlighted, being referenced approximately 20 times in just the first day of coverage by the two major New Orleans newspapers. In fact, the murder of this famous female physician, especially with the apparent sexual angle of the killing, was the talk of the town. Slashed with a knife, dismembered, and set on fire. 
and all the earmarkings of a sexual killing. According to the New Orleans State's item, homicide detective said the front door of her apartment had been forced open. Her wallet was empty and her 1961 automobile was missing. Sam Moran, special investigator from the New Orleans Parish Coroner's Office, said the front door had been forced open and an unsuccessful attempt had been made to open a jewelry box. So, clearly, the police put their money on a burglary. Unfortunately, they may well have been wrong. The death scene at the home of Mary Sherman presented uh, numerous apparent anomalies to investigators. There was no signs of forced entry. The burglar room was in an off position. The victim was found in her home, but her car was gone. A pair of blood-soaked gloves were found in the laundry hamper. She was found upside down on the bed, her feet at the headboard and her head at the foot. Clothing had been placed on the top of her, and the clothing, as well as the mattress, was smoldering, but it wasn't on fire. Two different sets of burns were present on her body. One set was pre-death and extreme in nature, and one set was post-mortem and moderate in nature. Neither set of burns would have been fatal. Two different sets of knife cuts were present on her body. One set was pre-death, one was post-mortem. Actual cause of death, her heart was pierced by a knife that passed through the intercostal space near the sternum, between the sixth and seventh ribs, directly over the heart. Neighbors had absolutely nothing, even though the walls were thin. And for, I mean, neighbors could usually tell when Dr. Sherman was home because they could ordinarily hear her footsteps quite easily. Smoke from the smoldering fire finally woke up a neighbor, and emergency units were called to the scene at 4.13 a.m. Fire damage to the apartment and the structure was very limited. In fact, there was no structural damage to the wood-framed building. The curtains in the bedroom, the same room where the victim was found dead, they weren't even, uh, hadn't even caught on fire. There was no motive anyone could come up with. Um, that was after burglary was ruled out. Although homicide investigators implied a sexual motive based on cuts to the genitals. And as a result of the sexual slant of the homicide report, the newspaper reports then uh, highlighted that aspect and people became convinced that it, it was a lesbian killing by a sexual psychopath and somebody the victim knew. Unfortunately for everybody concerned, the evidence did not support that theory. It wasn't until the next day, after the city had literally millions of word-of-mouth discussions about the uh, murder and burglary that the newspaper stated the front door had not been forced open and the burglar room had been turned off. The press now reported that the homicide department, impressed by these facts and the fact that the intruder knew which car belonged to Sherman and that a box of jewelry could have easily have been carried off was left behind, resulted in the ruling, uh, ruling out burglary as a motive. Elmanir Peterson, the Mary's housekeeper, uh, told police that burglar Ron was in an off position, that Dr. Sherman was expecting visitors from out of town, and she'd lay out a polka dot dress, which was found lying on a chair in the bedroom. As to whether or not the intruder forced the door open, uh, according to the report, 
Officers could find no signs of the door leading to the apartment uh, patio or sliding glass door having been forced open. The homicide report also said it appeared no scuffle took place inside the bedroom and nothing appeared to be disarranged in the bedroom or throughout the apartment. You know, especially around Tulane Medical School, Dr. Sherman was well-known and well-respected and professional people found the circumstances around her, surrounding her death extremely suspicious. According to Grapevine information, uh, whoever killed her knew what they were doing with a knife. It appeared they had a high level of medical knowledge, at least judging by the way the cuts were done. And the press coverage and the police reporting didn't mess well, and people who had following the case saw that something was out of kilter. Explanations of her murder didn't add up. Press coverage focused on an intruder, but there was no forced entry. Police investigation failed to determine any identifiable motive, but the homicide report strained to imply a sexual motive. The fact that no noises were heard by the neighbors was another dramatically inconsistent aspect of this crime scene. The old building was of a type of construction that the neighbors were very used to hearing the footsteps of Dr. Sherman returning from work, and as a result, they knew when she was home. And the crime scene was bizarre. How could anybody inflict such massive destruction on another person in the still of the night in a flimsy apartment filled with other people and not have anybody hear anything? Yeah. There's absolutely no way that a fire of the type in Dr. Sherman's apartment could have caused the damage apparent on Dr. Sherman's body. In fact, clothing that was found on top of the victim hadn't even burned. According to the homicide report, the body was nude, but there was clothing which had apparently been put on top of the body, mostly covering the body from just above the pubic area to the uh, neck. And some of the mentioned clothes had been burned completely, others were still intact but scorched. Well, Ed Haslam is somebody who has spent a lot of time researching uh, Dr. Sherman's death. He did some intelligent checking of the matter, approached it scientifically from the standpoint of temperature. And if you look at the homicide report, it says, according to the criminologist, the clothes on the body were composed of synthetic material that would have reached a temperature of about 500 degrees before it would ignite and Prior to this, it would have been a smoldering effect, so to speak. Well, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the day's show, and we'll talk more about Dr. Mary Sherman in our next show as we wrap up the Kennedy hit list. But until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. <laughs>